From the land of the Lenape. And the land of the Erie. This is Deadline. I'm Michael Sperger. And I'm J.C. Wilson. We wish all of you listening to us in the U.S. a very happy and safe Thanksgiving. J.C., at the end of our first season, you made a comment about how this podcast ended up being more of a historical record than we had expected at the start. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, I have something to add to the historical record. Here we go. I came in like a wrecking ball. I never hit so hard in love. All I wanted was to break your walls. All you ever did was wreck me. Yeah, you, you wreck me. Hold up. Are you the real Hannah Montana? No, sir. I am commemorating the arrival in my house of the Miley. Um, Cyrus Virus. Oh. We're going to need a whole other episode, I can see, on English Cockney rhyming slang. In the meantime, just go watch the remake of Ocean's Eleven. Basher uses it. You said something about a virus? Oh, yeah. Uh, Was it Zika? You know which one it was. (sighs) Indeed, I do. So, tell us about it. We're recording the weekend before Thanksgiving. So, the weekend prior, 14th, 15th, uh, my wife was up in upstate New York with our son. And she texted me Saturday evening and said, I have a fever. That's not great. It's not the best. Also that evening, our daughter Maria, art director and repeat guest of the pod, Uh, came to me and said, so I've had this uh, dry cough and now I'm pretty congested and I don't feel so good. (sighs) Okay, that's a one-two. So Chelsea's fever persisted uh, Saturday night into Sunday. By Sunday night, it actually started to fade. Where she was, the COVID tests that were available were through the hospital. So she had to go to the emergency room, got checked out, got tested for cold and flu because her symptoms were a little ambiguous. Sure. And the flu test came back negative pretty quickly. So we were just waiting and chilling to see what happened with the COVID test. Meantime, where we live, the best test availability is during weekdays from the county health department. So uh, the girls and I went on Monday and got our tests. Chelsea was able to get a rapid antigen test on Monday, uh, which came back positive. Um, so... We, uh, we we entered a new era in the household of having a COVID case right here in Hearth and Home. How do you how do you handle that on a day to day basis? What does that do to your your routine as a family? So the first thing was that uh, Chelsea was actually feeling pretty good on Monday and decided that she wanted to come home. She was only supposed to be up in New York for the weekend. She didn't have, you know, she had a couple days of uh, clothes and stuff with her. She felt like she was okay to drive. Um, So she decided to come home Monday evening. Her being out of the house at the beginning actually gave us a little bit of time to prepare around here. So we got quarantine bedroom set up for her. I actually set up a table in her room with drinks and snacks and extra plates and utensils and stuff so that we could kind of keep down on her need to access the kitchen. Right. Everything, everything I've read says that, you know, kitchen and bathroom are kind of your danger spots for transmission within a household. Fortunately, we live in a big house with multiple bathrooms and we were able to designate the bathroom on the same floor as her bedroom for her exclusive use. Now, Maria is on another floor in the house and 
it kind of seemed unavoidable that a couple of us were going to have to use a bathroom with her. All along, her symptoms really didn't match with COVID. And I was I was suspicious that she even had COVID at all. It was a crazy coincidence if she didn't. But she had visited a couple of friends uh, at Temple, which is a college here in Philly, on Thursday night uh, before she got sick. And then when she got sick, she let those friends know and they said, oh, yeah, we've all had this like crazy head cold sinus infection thing. It's been going around school here. You know, so we had like a little bit of an indication that Maria might have something else going on. But in any case, for Chelsea, since she was confirmed positive, we were going to take the most precautions. And we had already gone to everybody in the house wearing masks from Saturday evening when Maria said she wasn't feeling well. So outside of our own individual rooms, uh, we were we were masked up at this point. Unfortunately, we're all kind of left to our own interpretations on the rules and and how to think about COVID. I will say that uh, I am on team aerosol. I believe this thing is transmitted through the air. I also believe that uh, transmission on surfaces is not that much of a thing possible, but does not seem to be a major vector. Not really, no. You know, so my first priority was kind of get everybody in their own breathing space. Next priority was isolate, you know, kitchen and bathroom needs for Chelsea so that she could uh, stay quarantined. And then third thing was do what we could to make the situation workable with Maria while we were all waiting on our test results. Right. I'll also mention here that we have an air purifier, a HEPA air purifier in the bathroom that we were sharing with Maria. Um, so I felt like that offered us uh, some measure of protection, kind of a last line of defense. So this all starts to feel a little bit science fiction-y, doesn't it? At some point, living through it in person, like walking around your own house with a mask on and setting up air purification units and in no uncertain terms, identifying protocols that the family has to follow as a team. Definitely, you know, thoughts of the Andromeda strain and the stand uh, in the back of my head. We're eight months in. We knew it was out there. And we'll talk about this in a minute. But I kind of I kind of had a feeling that it was a matter of time um, before it showed up on our doorstep. You switch into a mode pretty quickly of like, okay, we're doing this. You have to think through all those details and make sure that you've kind of covered off everything reasonably. That's the difference, right? So one of the things that we've spent a lot of time thinking about, I think culturally, and probably everybody listening to this has had some thought about this, is prevention. So what do we do to keep this bug from getting inside the house? And I'm not entirely sure that everyone has given a lot of thought to what happens if it does get inside the house. I know that I live with a microbiologist and due to my uh, profession, uh, I've I've given a lot of thought to what would happen if this thing landed inside the door. Once that switch flips and it lands inside the door, nothing's negotiable anymore. Was that something that landed with your family? Did that, I mean, did everybody sort of have a moment of recognition together or did that sort of have to trickle in bit by bit? We did a good job, especially in the first couple of days of recognizing the seriousness uh, of what was happening. And I also just want to add to what you were saying that I think I think one of the biggest struggles we're seeing this year with the pandemic is that a lot of people have a hard time accepting the reality that's in front of them. I, I suspect we have talked about this before because it's it's something that was in mind for me even before COVID. It's just part of human nature 
that we struggle to acknowledge when reality has gotten, you know, really weird or beyond our imaginations. I was listening to a podcast a while back that was about um, the Chernobyl uh, series on HBO. And the guy who's the safety director for nuclear plants in the Soviet Union goes out and flies in a helicopter over Chernobyl, like as the reactor is melting down. And he spoke afterward about how his brain just could not process what he was seeing. This was his job. He was professionally prepared for this. He he knew getting into the helicopter what he was supposed to go see and then confronted with the reality of it. It was overwhelming. I think we're seeing tons and tons and tons of those moments uh, around us in society right now. When I am in the middle of a crisis, uh, these days I actually think about uh, good old Captain Sully on the airplane that landed in the Hudson River in New York a few years ago. Yeah. Um, you, you know, Sully said when the birds hit the engines and then, you know, they're basically gliding uh, at 3,000 feet over the biggest city in the country – the first thing you have to do is fly the plane. You have to accept, all right, this is, you know, I thought I was flying to Charlotte today, but, you know, now I got something else to do and you just switch. I think I'm pretty good at that. That's good it, because that's one thing where a number of people will fall down. You know, I've done training for scouts in the past and whatnot around first aid. In the training of things like the Heimlich maneuver, you always stress like you don't have a lot of time to make a decision on when you're going to go and execute this. You know, when you see someone who's struggling, time is important, but there is that hesitation, that desire to not flip the switch and to take that action. And it sounds like you you did a fairly good job of getting to the point where, oh, well, I guess this is what we're doing today. So, you know, kudos to you for that. With all of that in motion, though, now you're how many days in? Today, as we're recording, it's it's uh, Saturday, so it's a week uh, since Chelsea first uh, had a fever. At this point, the fever subsided after about 24 hours. At this point, she's only got the loss of taste and smell, mm -hmm. um, no other symptoms. Uh, she's She'll stay in quarantine until Wednesday this coming week, the day before Thanksgiving. It happens that the tests for the rest of us have all come back negative. Uh, including Maria's. But the tests for the girls didn't come back until Thursday morning. Mine came back Tuesday evening, and we had all been there together, which is just baffling. Um, but we had gone Monday afternoon for our test, uh, the three of us. Mine came back pretty quickly. Um, and then we had 36 more hours of wait and see. Um, Maria was improving in those days, but we still weren't sure, you know, if we'd been getting active COVID exposure from her as well as Chelsea while this week was playing out. And by the way, even though it seems that it probably wasn't COVID, we were trying very hard not to get whatever that bug was because we <laughs> right. needed to take care of Chelsea. <laughs> I mean, we keep forgetting, you know, please go get your flu shot because, you know, you know um, yeah, there's stuff out there. And 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 what I had not really thought about before this week is that any bug that's getting around right now with people wearing masks and and, you know, taking all these other precautions is a very persistent bug. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's not a thing I want to have in my house. <laughs> no. So, again, you know, and I hate to to kind of beat on this a little bit, but I think it's important, you know, jumping in and sort of taking this on and 
understanding that now you've got protocols in place and things that you you're following and knowing that there is a, an end point to the quarantine, you know, for Chelsea, are you planning on what comes next or, you know, what is the next thing for you with this, this process? At the moment, it's, it's really just following that course of the last few days of quarantine, but already, you know, the, the next round of life uh, is setting up because, you know, we're going to have questions once the official quarantine is up of what are we, what are we going to do now in terms of seeing other people? Right. Um, you know, we had, we had kind of a family set of policies before this exposure. That set of policies evidently wasn't up to the task of preventing COVID from showing up in the house. There are two things that I want to talk about with regard to COVID that feel really important to me, and I don't see people talking about them enough. And those things are fear and trust. The first thing with fear is that I find it's difficult for people to talk about risk uh, without sliding over into a discussion about fear or a fixation on fear. And you know what? That is totally understandable. I am an anxious human being. I understand from fear. Where I see difficulty is like we have to be able to talk about risk in a way that we don't end up in the cul-de-sac of like somebody goes, oh, you're scaring me. Stop scaring me, which means then we're going to stop talking about the risk. Right. I think that's totally unhelpful. Something I've been working on all through this year is, especially in a family setting, is how do we talk about risk without freaking each other out? In that spirit, right now, the the risk of bringing COVID into any household in the United States is arguably at the highest it's been the whole time. That is correct. Along with that, the thing that we have to manage and and be clear-headed about is that we're now going into what looks like a stretch of time where the healthcare system is going to be quite strained. In the springtime, when this was the case in the Northeast, uh, we had agreed to some things as a family just for, you know, kind of practical stay out of the hospital if we can manage it. Because when the health system gets overwhelmed with COVID cases, then that has a ripple effect on non-COVID cases too. So we're now in a stretch of time where I'm thinking about maybe I'm going to reimpose some restrictions for myself and the household on power tools. I was just going to say, my nail gun has been in the back of the basement since we moved in. Because that's just not a risk I need to be taking right now. You know, there's certain things like I needed to run an errand last night uh, just to drop something uh, in a friend's yard uh, in a safe way, which was also an excuse to go driving for a little bit and clear my head. I flipped that switch in Google Maps to say avoid highways yeah, um, so that I could travel at lower speed and you know take on less risk of a high-speed accident. It's stuff like that. And again, I go back to we're not generally equipped emotionally or, or mentally from our schooling or our upbringing to be able to talk clearly about risks without getting sidetracked with our concerns about fear. And I want to state this very clearly. I'm not saying that we should not feel concern or fear. That's unreasonable. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't talk about our fears. It's just that to the extent that we can separate the discussion of risks and the discussion of fears and deal with each of those things on their ter- on their own terms, I think that's healthy. I would agree with that. And I think that's something that gets 
overlooked consistently. You know, there's a whole lot of folks that would say, well, you can't live your life in fear. And that is correct. That is true. But you also can't ignore risk, right? We all know what the risks of driving a car on the highway. We all know what the risk of walking into you know, a hospital waiting room and licking a chair might be. There are all kinds of risks that we are, we're aware of and we can navigate in day-to-day life. We don't have to get bound up in the fear of it, but you can't ignore the fear either. You have to accept that that's going to be there. There's something there that's resonating with me deeply, and that is the discussion of these risks, especially risks that involve high impact. I can't say that COVID getting into my house is now a low probability event. Um, One of the things that we've had to change with the way our family approaches things is we're on a a hard separation from my brother's family. We were initially bubbling with him, but then 25% of the workforce at the manufacturing plant where he works is now in quarantine. He doesn't want to be patient zero for our family. And I quite frankly, don't want to take that risk either. You know, we look at the numbers and we say, okay, if 25% of the people that he works with have been exposed, that those aren't great odds. So, you know, maybe we back it off for a couple weeks or a month, or, you know, we sit back and we, we observe, we watch our risk, we watch our numbers, we pay attention to the world around us, and we make the best decisions we can make with the data that we have today. Because the data we have today is a lot better than the data we had six weeks ago, right? And, you know, that leads me to the other thing I wanted to talk about, which is trust. We've had discussions in our in our family over the last few months about the behavior that each of us is engaged in and what risk goes with that um, and what choices we're making. And what I have found is that sometimes that veers off into a conversation about trust And like the conversation about fear versus risk, I find that framing our decision-making right now in terms of trust is kind of unhelpful. And what I mean by that is that if you say to another person, I don't trust your choices, then I think what the other person hears is, I don't trust you at all, (laughs) which is really not what you're trying to get across. And again, it's it's the tangling of risk and emotion I'm not Spock out here. I am not. I have no Vulcan blood in my veins. I feel all the feels. Believe me. I think we've demonstrated that in in uh, in doing this thing. But I get frustrated sometimes because if I say, you know, your choices carry certain risks with them to you and to me, and because you're making those choices, I'm going to make other choices. Like. I don't feel like that's a trust conversation. I feel like that's an honest accounting for the the risk that we're all bringing to the household and how we're going to deal with that. Right. There's an accounting of things that are and what the reaction to that will be and the actions that will come as a result. And that's, again, those are statements of fact. It's not a, a question of, of feelings necessarily. It's, you know, I see this, now I must do that. Because again, we're, we're trying to do our best here to stay healthy and stay safe. Along those lines, I took a camping trip by myself in the beginning of October um, to get out while the getting was good for a little bit and, and uh, enjoy some time out in nature. And when I first got back from the trip, I uh, went for a COVID test and I was wearing a mask around the house um, because I'd been all over the place and it just felt like the right thing to do. As the days went on, I decided to keep wearing the mask because... I was struggling to figure out how to feel safe myself with the sum total of the set of choices that we were all making as a household. That's where some of that 
you know, trust conversation really, really hit a peak. And I found that it was most helpful for me to start to say to the rest of the family, I know what choices I want to make to feel safe and comfortable. I need to work through how those choices square with the choices that everybody else is making in the household. And there were some things that I, some steps that I took uh, to try and make it work. Um, so one of them is that, you know, since I'm on team aerosol and I knew, you know, I have a house that doesn't even have a forced air heating system. It's just radiators with hot water. Um, so I knew that air circulation as we closed up the house was going to be a thing. So I went off and did my research and I bought some air purifiers uh, for the certain hot spots in the house, like the bathrooms. Shout out to my friend Tom Averill, um, who reported a story for the Philly Inquirer on do-it-yourself air purifiers. I built one following his design. We call it the Breathalator 9000, and it is uh, sitting uh, next to the kitchen on the ground floor. Does it have racing stripes? Uh, it does not yet have racing stripes, but that's a fine idea. I like that you said yet. That's important. <laughs> The breathalator and the air purifiers around the house were, you know, really something that I put in place uh, for my own comfort and and to protect everybody in the family. And we'll never know if they actually helped uh, to contain the COVID and non-COVID exposure that we had this past week. But I, I, I can't think that they hurt. Here's the thing about that. The fact that nothing bad happens doesn't mean that all of your work to keep bad things from happening wasn't worth it. Yeah. <laughs> that was a lot of negatives in one sentence. I'm going I'm to have to go lick some tasty hospital chairs to process that. After I got back from the trip in October, I started taking some steps to secure the household for the rising caseload. One of the things that I did was uh, I put together a starter PPE kit to have in my bedroom on the expectation that we would see a case in the house eventually. And I put the date on that kit just so just for my own curiosity to see how long it took from <laughs> the creation of the kit to the arrival of the case. And uh, that date was October 24th. So in less than four weeks, I went from, hey, I'm going to take some steps to get ready for this to the actual thing. So never too late to plan, never too late to put one of those kits together and stick it under the bed, and certainly never too late to think about what would happen if something got into the house and what your plan would be for your family, because I think that looks different for everybody. I know with a nine-year-old and a 13-year-old, it's a very different story than with yes. uh, kids your kids' ages. You know, we, we would have a very, very different conversation, I think, in that, in that case. We want to hear your thoughts of how you're dealing with uh, COVID in the neighborhood. Um, give us a call on the dad line. The number is plus one four one two six eight four dads. That's area code four one two six eight four three two three seven. Our operators are not on duty today. They're off enjoying their Thanksgiving turkey and mashed potatoes in social isolation. But you can leave us a message and we'll pick it up. And remember to subscribe to Dadline wherever it is you get your podcasts. Remember, every time someone subscribes, a dad stays positive and tests negative.